What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Long Game Podcast hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. All right. What's up? And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. Today, I am joined by Kehi. He is the founder of Rad Reads. If you've been on Twitter, which probably you are, you've seen me and him interact a little bit. Um, Kehi, thanks for joining me, man. I, I really appreciate you giving this time. It's funny. You've been on my list of like the the wants I have for my podcast, which hopefully this is like a testament for you of like, it's Morgan Housel, it's <laughs> you, it's Jack Butcher, it's a few other people who are just like so well thought out in everything that they do and so intentional. And I think just the way that you communicate is is super unique, which I feel like all those people on the list have a, a very perf- almost perfect way of like storytelling and getting messaging across that is not a normal skill for most people. Oh, well, thank you. That That is, uh, I am a, I'm a, a, a small man amongst the giants who you just described. So that's very kind of you. And thank you to everyone who's listening. I'm, I'm excited to jump in. Yeah. Well, let's kind of start off with who you are, what you do, and kind of like the, your whole your whole story from Wall Street to now. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I always start off, you know, my name's Kehi, and I am father to two incredible little girls, Soraya and Amelie, nine and five, and uh, husband to an incredible uh, wife and partner, Lisa. Uh little bit about my story. Right now, I live in Manhattan Beach, which is a suburb of LA, a couple blocks walking distance from the beach, which has been a lifelong dream of mine. I surf uh, pretty much every day. You could see a surfboard in, in the background. Um, I grew up in, I'm 43 years old. I grew up in New York City. Um, I was a child of uh, first-generation Cambodian immigrants. I'll give you the very abbreviated um, story, but they said we moved to this country with very little, uh, we barely spoke the language, no friends, no family, uh, and a little bit of money. And our mission on this earth was to create opportunity for our children. And I bet you and many of our listeners can relate, you know, for those of us who have kids, uh, everything is in service or so much of what we do is in service of, of their needs and their well-being. What did that mean? For me to be, <clears throat> for me and my sister to have opportunity, that meant uh, lots of schoolwork, getting good grades, playing the violin, doing your extracurriculars, getting good SAT scores, going to a good university. That was um, Yale for me. Getting a good job and staying on the escalator of the good job, and then you will be rewarded with showers of happiness, joy, peace, and levity, and wealth. And well, mm-hmm. so, uh, so I did that plan. Um, I worked very, very hard, um, from, from my earliest memory. Like I was always scrappy, always reading, always trying to put pieces together. Wall street, 14 years in fund of hedge funds. And, um, I got promoted many times, 
I was a uh, managing director running uh, our New York research office for BlackRock at 35 years old, at 31 years old. And then at 35, I woke up, pulled the ripcord and said, thanks for the run, guys. I'm out. And uh, started this new, very unpredictable, very accidental, very experimental, very joy-filled life as a creative entrepreneur. And we just wrapped, I just wrapped my eighth year of entrepreneurship. I love it. Um, I'm, we're going to dig into a, a couple parts of that. Um, but I think the, uh, I think it would be helpful for people to know why, like, you know, what, what drives you that change? I think I, I talked to so many people in their twenties and they're working at, you know, the big four or they're in consulting or they're investment banking. And I always love to dig into this and like, understand the people better of like, what is, what is your end goal here? Right? Like, mm. I, I, I don't think I, I don't think empathize is the right word, but I'm always, it's always such an interesting breed of people who make those top levels there. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it'd be interesting to hear from your story of what made you make that change. Cause I think yeah. for one, people always say they're, they're probably gonna, and mm -hmm. then sometimes they get locked in and they get, you know, maybe addicted to the work and addicted to the money and other people burn out and then other yeah. people leave for, you know, life reasons. Yeah. So I'll give, uh, I'll give a tactical response and then I'll give a um, more spiritual or philosophical response. So the tactical response, and I would encourage anyone uh, who's listening to this podcast, you as well, is to look at, you're on a career track and look at that track. You could be an accountant, you can be a hedge fund manager, or you could be a YouTuber. And think about what success in that field looks like in like, I don't know, five years, 10 years. And then ask yourself, do I want to own that version of success? Right. And so I looked at, I was 35 and I looked at, you know, managing directors at 45 in financial services. They had great lives. They lived in the fanciest suburbs of New York City. Their kids went to the best private schools. They had second homes at ski resorts. Um, they took really lavish vacations to safaris and glamping and you, you name it. Uh, but at the same time, they were still like, on their phone all the time and filling out reports for customer, you know, for our clients and just, they were just going through the motions and there was nothing wrong with that. But I looked at myself and I was like, I don't want that for me. And I think it's, a, it's interesting because people look at me now as a creative entrepreneur and I've been doing it for, for eight years and they're like, wow, like we want that. And, and, and I, I will often lift up the kimono and be like, I have written a newsletter every single Saturday for eight years. Do you want that? Mm -hmm. Two kids were born, two cross, two trips across the world, cross country move, a couple friends passing, like every single weekend, pretty much. Do you want that? A lot of people are like, Ooh. If I, I don't know if I want that, you, you know? So that was the first thing is like, do you want to own the successful version of your track of your career? And for me, the answer was a resounding no. I think the other question though was, um, have you ever times had this, like you're walking and there's uh, something in your shoe mm -hmm. and it's kind of annoying, uh, but it's not annoying enough to stop, stop <laughs> and take it out. Yeah, 100%. And so what do you keep doing? 
you just keep walking and you deal with it. You say, when I get home, I'll fix it. You just deal. Mm -hmm. Right. And I had this pebble about the job that I was in. I think it lacked creativity. I grew up, I basically, my high school years were the early days of 28-8 internet. Mm -hmm. I love the internet. Mm -hmm. And people on Wall Street don't give a crap about the internet. Um, I love variety. So I love where every day looks different. When you have a very high paying job, usually the point is every day to look the same because you're good at the same. Yeah. Uh, and I think at its core, I just I felt dead inside. And I wanted to just feel alive. And I don't know what that meant, right? I encourage all of your listeners, like anyone listening around, ask yourself, like, when when was the last time where I, where I felt alive? Not like on a roller coaster or, you know, bungee jumping, but sustainable, like for a long stretch of time, like I was, a, I feel alive doing this thing. And I was just, I felt dead inside. And I was, I, I looked at my, I had a one-year-old daughter. I had saved a bunch of money and I looked around and I said, I'm way too young to be dead inside. In fact, I'd rather be dead than dead inside. I know that's maybe a little dramatic, but I want to feel that aliveness for the rest of my life. If like, what's the point if you don't feel that aliveness? So that that was kind of the deeper, more philosophical thing uh, that that was like something feels off here. Okay, I don't think you there's owe any it way. to yourself to look into it. Like you owe it to yourself to take the shoe, the pebble out. Yeah. And I don't think there's any way to overlook your childhood, right? Like there's no way to assume that, that you probably wouldn't have taken that approach, right? Like that your childhood. And I feel like it's not my experience, right? I work with a ton of people where that is their experience. First generation, even Americans, their parents came over, they had nothing. Kids had this opportunity and they feel required to work hard, make a ton of money, support their family. And I don't necessarily think that's a good or a bad thing, but I think for, for a period of time, you probably put your head down and didn't even really think there was another option, right? Like I went to Yale, right? Like I, I actually almost ended up going to Yale to play basketball. And uh, oh, yeah. I remember- I remember looking back and uh, I was in their coach's office and he was like pointing to everybody. He's like, he makes 700,000 on wall street and he's at Goldman and he does this. And I just walked away and I was like, Oh, I just hope that my whole life isn't only about money. And mm -hmm. I think maybe I've gotten lucky where I can, I can make good money and also feel purposeful and be creative and, mm -hmm. and start a business. But I think like for you, do you, do you look back and say, do you, do you, do you wish you would have made a change sooner or was it, I don't think I really ever, would have picked my head up and thought about a change. And eventually one day, and, and was it because you felt like you had enough money or is it more so of like, was there a stability point that you had to create for yourself? Yeah. So my question, cause I think as a lot of people hear these type of stories, they're like, well, how do I, as soon as I possibly can move into mm -hmm. something that I love and purpose driven and gives me the ability to, to enjoy my life. But we also have to, we can't ignore the fact that you do have to put in some hours and some work and yeah. you know, grind and improve your skill set to even give yourself that option most times. Absolutely. It's a wonderful question. And look, I, there's tremendous, I can, I can pick apart 
the privilege that I had leading up to my decision to leave Wall Street that many people don't have. My parents paid for all my, I had zero student debt, right? I came from a very stable household, you know, not parents who were together, you know, those who still are together. Very little tragedy in my life. I'm a straight Asian cis male. Like, you know, people don't assume a lot of things about me. You know, I'm, I'm very culturally safe, so to speak. So absolutely, there was a tremendous amount of kind of privilege leading up to that. In terms of, you know, the path that I took, I think I'll start with an overarching point. And that is, I firmly believe that I am the byproduct or of all of my collective decisions, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. And so I can never really look back and be like, I wish I hadn't done that, or I wish I had left earlier. Because look, the reality is my best writing is because I went through those feelings of having a high paying job, right? If I had left at 25, I couldn't write about walking away from a great career because I didn't have a great career at 25. I had a fine career. And so, but so at the same, but at the same time, if I'd left at 25, I'm sure I would have found something else to write about, right? Uh, what's so hard about being a 25 year old? So it, it's hard to like kind of armchair quarterback uh, on your own life around the timing. Um, but in terms of like needing the financial runway, uh, absolutely, right? So obviously you and, and all listeners are are familiar with like with Maslow's hierarchy, where the bottom layer is um, uh, shelter, basic needs, right? Shelter and food, right? And I suspect that the listeners of this podcast have basic needs, shelter and food covered, you know, in multiples, as do the readers of Rad Reads. So I, I, you know, it doesn't mean we should not talk about that, but we're also playing for a different part. I would argue that once shelter and basic needs are covered, then you're in like, you're in fair game. Yeah. Right. People are like, well, you can't live in New York. Like, oh, okay. Well, who says you have to live in New York? like, oh, well, um, you know, what about healthcare? It's like, there are exchanges. It's not the best healthcare, but there are exchanges. Um, you're, fuck, you're fucking up your kids, right? Like, am I? Or are you fucking up your kids because you never see them because you're always traveling, right? So once you leave the land of basic needs, uh, then you start to get into like, into cultural conditioning. Right, which is what does society say that a Yale, that an educated Yale person should do? What does society say about someone who uh, is buying mediocre healthcare and has a young family? What does society, God forbid, say about someone who's 35 years old and surfs every day for two hours? Right? What is society saying? What is the cultural conditioning? And I think that. Yes, you need money to do it. And we had a decent amount of money from from many years of Wall Street. But I promise you, I promise you that there are people with 10 times, 20 times more money than me that say it's physically impossible for them to leave. And there are people with a tenth of what I have that are able to leave. Mm -hmm. So at beyond some point, you own the number, right? You own the number. You own it with your spouse. You own it with your kids, right? 
everything should be questioned. Some people be like, well, I have to send my kids to private school. I agree. Private schools are really good. But says who? Right? Or I got to pay for my kids' college to send them out with no debt. That's a great thing. But who says you have to? What happens if you did it? God forbid you left them with 20% debt. Right? So these stories come in. And, and the thing about the stories are a little bit like a virus is that they, they latch on to your insecurities. So if you were insecure about, um, let's say you grew up in a money in a household where money wasn't abundant, the story of healthcare of, um, you know, you need to have this much in your bank account is going to latch on. If you grew up where your parents struggled with the healthcare system, the story about like, I'm putting my family's health at risk is going to latch onto that part. And I honor that, that it, like whatever happened is valid and you are completely justified in feeling that and acknowledge that some of this is a residual pain, a residual hurt, residual trauma in some cases that is clouding your decision around how much money it takes. And to be even more blunt about it, most people that walk away from high paying jobs could always quit and come back and get a high paying job. So let's just not, let's not say that it's like a, you know, a, a, a death sentence to your career. Like you're, you're, you're at MD at BlackRock, you leave for two years and you decide you want to reenter finance. Don't give me the bullshit that you're unemployable. You actually might your be more ego. What's that? You might be more employable. Because I am more employable today than yeah. I was if I had stayed. 100%. I get invited to conferences. I get shown investment opportunities. I see so much. I get invited to events, like, like secret events that I would never have been invited to be, had I stayed on Wall Street. Because to the, that group, I'm more interesting. <laughs> And again, that's one lever of it, but I'll stop there. I've been, I told you earlier, like when the F-bombs start coming up, it means I'm getting hyped. No, I, I love it. And I think that there's like so much intertwined in personal finance of what you just talked about. I mean, I've helped a ton of people leave their miserable job that they're at. And may, I'm not saying that you were miserable at your job, but a lot of people are miserable in their job. They have this idea they want to start their business and one of the worst things that they can do is, you know, you look at society and you have the $10,000 mortgage and then you each have a thousand dollar car payments. And then you have $2,000 a month, private school for two kids. And, you have, and then you're like, Hey, I don't know if I can actually take this leap because I put myself into this situation where to live is so mm -hmm. expensive that we have to save so much cash And this mm -hmm. importance of here of like, okay, let's segment these things out. Like what are the needs that you care about? Mm -hmm. And then what are these wants, right? And like to you is, would you rather give up some of these wants to be, have a happy life and be with your kids and surf and do whatever you want? Or are the material possessions and those things more important to you than that? And yeah. I'm not trying to tell anybody there's a right answer there. I know what your answer is. I know what my answer is there. But these are things that people really have to think through before they can take that leap. Because when you take that step back and say, these things that we think are needs are not actually needs, right? Yes. Like, you know, we don't have to live. I mean, for example, we don't have to live in downtown LA at a $3 million house. We could move 
and still live somewhere really great that gives us this other thing that we want. But I feel like so many people feel locked into decisions yeah. because of money and a lifestyle that they got accustomed to, which makes them stay and work till they're 60. Yeah. I could move to, when I left Wall Street, I could have moved to a small town in America and said, my kids are going to public school and they're going to go in state and I would never have to work again. I don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> I love coasts. <laughs> I got a problem. I love coasts. I love high cost of living places. And that's cool. I also love working. Yeah. When it's on my terms. Yeah. And that rural, you know, living in a small town in, in rural America, like I don't, that's not for me because I would want to work anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think, I mean, it's important to know yourself there. I think, um, uh, we haven't even gone into like what the topic of this podcast is actually in, in this episode, but I think this is kind of stepping, you know, setting us up for the spot of like the goal of this podcast is to help talk through and how you think through and how you help other people think through like defining what enough is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. I think, you know, you look at your job and, you know, a vast majority of those people definitely don't understand what their enough is. And what's so interesting to me about this topic and what I'm excited to dive into with you about is how you determine whether this thing is enough, because like I look at goals and things that I have, and I think it's so hard to internalize whether it's for you or whether it's for something else, right? Like mm -hmm. is me wanting to be really successful about, I love this and mm -hmm. I, I'm a builder and I love building things. And if I just stopped and I said, I have 50 clients, I make a good living, I would be bored. I know myself, like that would feel like mm -hmm. retirement to me. Yeah. And, but then it's like hard to say, like to go to those heights, is that about me and my ego? Mm -hmm. Is it is it about me feeling better about myself or is it about, I love this, you know? Mm -hmm. And and I don't really know how to distinguish between those and figure it out. Yeah. And that's what I'm super excited to kind of dig into with you. Yeah. Oh, man. So there's... Can I react to, to one thing uh, mm -hmm. there? Because you didn't you didn't ask a question, but I, I want to react is um, there's a really... There's something that I work with a lot of... I coach a lot of people who have come into a lot of money. We're, you know, we're talking um, eight, nine figures. Mm -hmm. And... One thing they'll tell you is like very quickly, very early is like, okay, especially once they come into that wall. So they didn't have it before is there are money problems and there are non-money problems. And the money, the and money problems are basically problems that money can solve and non-money problems are problems that money can't solve. And those are the worst, right? Yes. And they go a step further you realize that you actually don't, again, this is people outside of the um, basic needs category. Um, you actually realize that there's there's not that many problems that money can solve, like relative to millions and millions of dollars, right? Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting starting point on enough, right? Because a lot of times people use this concept of enough is because they think that all of their problems will go away, right? And, you know, you might look at someone that's living this dream life, Anthony Bourdain, right? He gets to eat at the finest restaurants, at the grime, you know, the, the, the 
rickshaws and the food trucks all over the world with Barack Obama and your favorite rock star and your favorite rapper and, and on and on and on. And on the inside, you know, there were, he didn't, he, there were problems that money couldn't solve. Right. And there's, and, and it's tragic, but I think that that is a really important distinction to point out, right? Money problems and non-money problems. The other thing that I want to point out is that um, I had a viral tweet on this the other day, but um, there's a survey where they ask millionaires, how much more money would you need to be a 10 out say, of 10 yeah, on the happiness say. scale? Mm-hmm. And so they said 1 million, double. Millionaires, double. People with 5 million, double. People with 10 million, double, right? And so I think we just have to honor that there is a hedonic adaptation that like they're like we are wired to always want more and worry and worry. Yeah. And so here's the thing. So I want to I want to say this like. People, there's a large group of people who hoard, who accumulate money out of worry. Right. And. And so the the question then becomes is like, well, what what are like what is worth worrying about? Or again, what can money solve? Right. And so when you think about worry, right? Um, I remember this. Uh, I had a friend, and he was a VP at a big um, consumer brand, like a makeup brand, cosmetics brand. And he got poached to go be the CFO at a startup, at a, like a late stage startup. So he quit this like, you know, known commodity at, at this place. He quits and he goes back and he goes to the startup. And on the first day, he's a CFO. He realizes that they've been lying to him about the financials and they're actually going to run out of money in a couple months. Oh, man. So I'm talking with him uh, and we're walking in and he and he said, um, I'm so I'm so worried. Um you know, his, his partner, his spouse has this medical condition. They had a young child. Uh, my kids, uh, my wife, my kids, they, they could be at risk because, you know, I'm going to lose my job. And then I asked them, what would happen if you went back to your old company? It's been two weeks and you said, hey, can I have my job back? Like, they would be so happy. And so I said, well, what are you worried? What were you worried about then? Right. And so the thing that he thought he was worried about was the well-being and health of his family. But really what he was worried about was the shame and the embarrassment Mm. of having to admit that he fucked up. Mm. And so as you think through the worry, I would encourage you to think through. It's like, what worry, in, in, in spiritual terms, they call that ego death which is when your your ego gets attacked, your sense of self gets attacked. He was worried about ego death, but he, the brain is so tricky. They're like, oh, that's, that's not a sexy thing to be worried about. That's not dramatic enough. And so the brain concocts the story that like you're putting your family at risk. When he knew he could get a job right away. Right. So, so to anyone who worries about money, your worries are valid and, and I honor them. But I also 
ask you to like really kind of ask what's behind the worry? What's the story behind it? I would take it a step further and say, humans in general, the ego is very fragile. And we want to know that we are viewed as good. We want to know that we are viewed as smart. We want to know that we are viewed as talented, special, relevant. A lot of worry is one of those things being taken away from us. But people will say, like, I won't be able to put food on the table. They're like, no, I'm worried about the embarrassment that I made a bad decision. The shame. So that's kind of, I'll pause there, but that's, uh, that's one kind of, one lens on, on worry. Yeah, I have two points I want to go back to there. I think the one that I found really interesting is I do find like I work with people from every level of wealth. Like I, I have a client household right now who parents crazy worried about money. They they will be above 50 million net worth. They worry about money. They lend somebody 20 bucks. They want the 20 bucks. It's just like how they are. And I think what that helped me realize is that like, it's not actually unique to the amount of money. It's it's not actually like everybody thinks that it could all go away. We could all lose our money. And I think what you did there, which I found to be really helpful is like, take them through that whole train of thought about why they're worried. Right. Because everybody comes in and they're like, I don't want to do this. Cause I'm worried. Or like, yeah. you know, in these examples, like I don't want to put money in my 401k because what if I need that? Right. And you're like, mm -hmm. you just take them through like, okay, well, why would you need it? And then you're mm -hmm. like for this to be like, yeah, but wouldn't that solve that there? And they're like, oh yeah, but what about this? And then you just mm -hmm. take them through this thought and you can kind of like plug the hole in every yeah. worry they have. But that's not like a natural thing for us to do as people as we just stop at that surface level. Like yeah. you know, I'm starting my business. I'm worried that I'm going to run out of money and that we're not mm -hmm. going to move. Yeah. And but you're like, but like, don't you have two years of runway? Yeah. But also like that would be zero income over two years. What if, mm -hmm. you know, in one year you were getting 25% of that. Okay. Now mm -hmm. that's like, like, there's just so much thought and our brains are wired to stop at just yeah. the worry without taking it deeper and how to actually solve them. Yeah. I, I would take it even a step further. They're not worried that our brains don't stop at the worry. They, Fix they it. get amplified mm. by the worry, right? Fight or flight. It's like you're, you're just thinking about losing your job can trigger your fight or flight response, but you don't think about what's on the other side, like the possibility. Right. And I think, you know, you, one needs to have a good balance on, on both of, of those, like a good balance of possibility of abundance thinking and worry. I don't think worry is the right word, but I think uh, a clear eyed assessment of what could go wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the ego will quickly, like whatever the clear-eyed assessment is, the ego will quickly like creep in. I'll tell you a story. I, I have this thing. You might, you, you and your clients would find it entertaining. I have this thing that, that I call my bear market journal. And so every time I read a doom and gloom, I've been keeping this for, for 10 years. Every time I read a doom and gloom article, I take a screen. I mean, I started this before screenshots were a thing. So it was like a hyperlink. I take the article. I put the date, I put uh, the level of the S&P 500. And so, uh, and so I remember I was going through this with, a, with a, one of my coaching clients the other day. And I, I have coach, I do like money coaching. So it's not, it's about the psychology of money. And it's not about the money itself because uh, I'm not registered. So I was going through and I, and I, and I read one and it, and it said, um, this was Axios. It was March 
uh, March something 13th, 2020. And it said, we might be approaching uh, something that's worse than the depression. Yeah. And then you go back in your journal and you've seen it 20 times. <laughs> yeah, and, and I've seen that. And the stock market is up like 100%. That was like the day after COVID was uh, the, the day after the lockdowns were announced. The stock market's up like 100% since, including this recession, like since that day. And I and you go back and, you know, famous last word, this time it's different, mm. right? Um, this was a big book um, from 2009 that kind of explained the global. So everyone's like, this time it's different. Anytime there was a, a crisis after that, people would just be like, this time it's different. The black swan events. Here. Exactly. Yep. It's like 300% since that book came yep. out. Right. And I think that, you know, the mind attached, I, I do that to remind myself that the fight or flight is not actually real. Right. Or I mean, no, it's real, but it gets triggered um, haphazardly. It's not very accurate. It's not an accurate predictor of fright. Yeah. Especially because it's like a natural response. And like, mm -hmm. that's something that I've learned over time too, is like, we all have a different natural response to things. And again, this goes back to childhood, right? Like if you're mm -hmm. somebody that grew up in a way where like money was scarce, maybe mm -hmm. your house was foreclosed, like your parents moved, you had to chip in, like you are going to have way more of a response to yep. the market going down or like potential starting a job and your income going down. And I don't think there's any way to, maybe there is ways to quiet that, but we all have a natural response. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing to learn is like, how do then we internalize that? And how do we then take the right steps beyond that and not live in that understand it's yeah. going to come, but how do we get through that? And then that's a hard thing to do for a lot of people. And I would say that the, the one thing I would propose if people do want to break out of that cycle, the one thing that I found to be the most helpful is therapy mm -hmm. because therapy helps you revisit. Let me rephrase one thing therapy does helps you revisit old scripts that are no longer relevant, but still dictating your life. Yeah. I love how intentional you are with your words. Like you go back to make sure that thought is perfect. <laughs> I really love that. I just don't want to get canceled. No, I, I don't think you're going to get canceled for <laughs> Um, But I, the one thought that we were talking about before that I kind of want to go back to is the Anthony Bourdain side. Mm -hmm. And like, to me, that one is so interesting because I think in the whole discussion of what is enough, that life story is where I think it becomes hard. So I was listening to a podcast. I'm not a Dan Blazarian guy, obviously nobody can, mm -hmm. you know, nobody can say you support Dan Blazarian, but he had a podcast and he was talking about like his life journey. And he's like, you know, right now I go to like a two-star Michelin restaurant, like every night. Right. And he mm -hmm. goes, but I remember when I got out of the military and I went to Outback with my brother, mm -hmm. he said that steak was better than any meal I've had in the last mm -hmm. five years. Right. And I think like, that thought process is expect expectations is was one thing. And then also what we become accustomed to. Mm -hmm. So like, how, how do you think through this or help people think through like what yeah. enough is when you have enough, but then it, you're just like accustomed to it. And yeah. now it's like, now I want the next thing. And yeah, whether it's yeah. Okay. Or wrong. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it's a little bit like, I, I remember the first time I, I got high uh, smoking pot I was 18 years old, I was sitting on the, on the East River in New York, and there were these smokestacks. And I took a few hits of this like janky, janky ass weed. 
and um, the smokestacks turned into what do they call it? Like they're one of these Star Wars things, like the things with, like lightsabers. The, the I, I don't know, one of those like Star Wars, you know, monster thingies. Oh, okay. Um, and I'm like, whoa, that was off of two hits. I have never hallucinated off of weed since. Right. And I've, I'm not a big smoker, but I have smoked my share of weed in my lifetime. So the point is that our bodies adapt, right? So whatever it is, whether it's weed, whether it's a promotion, whether it's a bonus, whether it's buying something fancy, whether it's staying the baseline that adapts, right? What's that? Yeah. I said, even it could be like surfing or like your favorite yeah. activity after doing it so many times. Everything. And what gets, what, what is tricky is you need to find what brings you contentment or satisfaction that doesn't have a thing attached to it. Like, how can you be satisfied just in the moment, right? I know we're doing some, some Eckhart Tolle Power of Now shit, but this is a, that's a very powerful book. It's like, if you need anything to make you content, by definition, you will always need something to be content. Hmm. So how can we find contentness from within? It's tough. Right. Like I think through that for myself. I'm like, okay, if I took away my job, mm-hmm. you know, fiance, my dog, my family, like, am I sitting here happy? I don't know. Probably. I mean, mm-hmm. all of those things make me super happy and I love everything about them. Yeah. And that's good. Obviously it's good, but I think mm-hmm. that like internal, well, I've always heard the happiness is the wrong word that like mm-hmm. happiness is like a, not an, a long-term state. It's like an emotion that you have. Like, yeah. You know, I'm a big Duke fan. I'm at the national championship. They win. I'm happy. But contentment, mm-hmm. what you were just talking about before, is like what we should actually be seeking because that's like a level state. Yeah. You know, I think that through, through like, I feel like I'm there right now. I feel like I'm very lucky to have a lot of the things that I really yeah. love and care about and purpose and all these things where like, even when things are really hard or really stressful, I feel content. You know, mm-hmm. like this is a problem that I'm lucky to solve. But I look yeah. back like two or three years ago and I wasn't really in that state. And like, I think you can see how people respond in the real world. Yeah. Like, why do they respond like that? Or like, why are they like kind of rude? Or why are they kind of mad? It's like, well, then I look and like, what if I wasn't content? What if I felt like everything was going wrong in my life? I'm also unhappy with myself. Mm-hmm. Everything else seems worse in compounds. Yeah. Well, there, you're getting to the crux of a deeply, deeply philosophical question. And I don't, and I am sorry to disappoint. I'm going to say it in advance. I don't have the answer, but I could give you two frameworks to kind of think about it. Okay. So there's a traditional, um, kind of the, the use giant air quotes, the Western framework for happiness is almost like one of getting things and, and like the, the pursuit of getting things. So let's say, you know, there, there's an uh, archery target and then you, you aim your, your arrow at the target. And as you hit the thing and like that whole process is like the path to happiness, right? Like the, the, the hitting of arrows. There's an Eastern, um, air quotes, uh, a perspective, which is we are all born happy. Mm-hmm. We just don't let ourselves see it. You can go back to that example about my friend and the worry with the layoffs and all that. He was safe, but he didn't let himself see that he was safe. 
And so I, t- I, I like to believe that it's probably some mix of the two, like finding that life satisfaction. I think that as Westerners in living in Western culture, we tend to live too much in the like, let me get this thing. Let me, f-, and we forget that like innately we are happy, right? And once you get the thing, it doesn't really mean as much. As exactly. So, so you kind of, yeah, you see the, the brokenness of it. And so, you know, it, 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 I think you're asking a deeply, deeply philosophical question, which is at our core, when you strip everything away, even the things that we love, who are we and what are we, right? Like, I'm on this podcast because I've done some things on the internet and and I have some respect and so on. If I wasn't, if I hadn't done those things on the internet and I hadn't been invited on this podcast, am I, am I, I'm not less of a person, right? I'm still the same person. And whatever is in me, the capacity for love, the capacity for presence, the capacity for whatever it is, like that wouldn't change because that is innate and germane to me. But again, we get so focused on that. What's next arrow, next arrow, next arrow, next arrow. We forget to be like, like, oh, am I, am I, you know, it was was all those things that cause worry. Am I good? Am I safe? Am I loved? Am I relevant? Right. And I hate to get super existential about it, but at the end of the day, I think it boils down to like a deep attachment. All of this boils down to a deep, deep attachment. Got your seatbelt on? No, I'm going to die. And that's for a culture that is so um, focused on logic and science and, and um, math and, you know, variables fucking sucks, right? Because no math that we can concoct is going to change the fact that we are going to die. And I would argue that so many of those anxieties, that fear, when my friend was like, my, my, my kids, that is a deep, some sort of fear that like, and I could die and I will die, right? And that's why when I see, you probably see them on Twitter too, these, I call them like the longevity nut jobs where they're like drinking other people's blood and like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. making cow piss milkshakes, whatever the fuck they're doing. Like I look at them and I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you are so tormented by the fact that one day you will die just like I will die, just like Thomas will die. That you are so tormented by that, that you are, you're brain is going on overdrive to try to fix something that is completely unfixable. So we got off on this tangent, but you were asking like, what is the, like, what is happiness? I think. And where, where does that contentment come from? I would argue a big, at least for me personally, a big part of that contentment came with accepting that I'm going to die. And seeing the beauty of like accepting I was going to die is actually not necessarily a scary thing anymore, but it makes me alive for every moment that I'm on this earth. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's enough. 
right? That's what we all want. We want that feeling of an aliveness in our bones, but the fear keeps us dead inside. No, (laughs) we went way off on a tangent. It's super, I mean, it's super interesting to me because I think like where my head goes after hearing that is like, you know, I think part of accepting that is like being able to find that contentment in your life. Cause like I look and I ask some people really deep questions when they become clients to really understand their values and what matters to them. And it's not like the remit, you know, what's your rich life, but it almost kind of tries to get down to that idea of like, you know, if money didn't matter, or if you had limited time or, you know, today's your last day, like, you know, who did you not get to become? What did you miss out on? How do you change your life? And I think if, you know, you have a ton of those answers of like, I regret this, you know, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have pursued this thing I want. It is kind of hard to be content because you're leaving a lot on the table of what your full capability is. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm curious for you and you have these conversations with people, like how do you help them figure out what that is to them, right? Like mm-hmm. what is that content life look like? Cause again, I just feel like we all go through the day to day, you know, you're, you're married, you have kids, you have a business, mm-hmm. whatever, blah, blah, blah. You have all these things. You don't actually even think about yeah. what, what matters to you, what your goals are. You just have this surface level belief. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I was with, uh, I was being cheeky with one of, uh, this life coach that I was working with and we're talking about all these these fears and these things that I'm scared about and and all that. And they're, they're like, but what like what's like who are you really on the inside? And I was like, oh, that's easy. I'm just a squishy love ball. <laughs> like literally, like I'm a happy. Like I want to give hugs. I want to cheer people up. I, I don't bring any negativity. And it's just like, wow, maybe it's. Like, it's almost like we don't, it's not allowed to be that simple. Right. And, you know, you know me and you're like, oh, when I say like, just be a squishy love ball, it's not that it probably doesn't sound so crazy to you. Like given the personality that that's on the other side of the, of the screen, right. Is that's kind of, I didn't realize like, that's how I live my life. So, so how do I help people? I think there's a few things. And and one thing I want to point out really is really salient to this conversation is because I've worked with many, many people with a lot of money. And one thing that they have in common is that they're very incapable of finding their aliveness. That there's some, there's almost like a, this is non-scientific, but there's a positive correlation between amount of wealth and debt inside. Yeah. I've pretty much found that to be true too. So how do you help people find their aliveness, right? And, you know, I think one question that I ask often is, you know, if money, you probably asked some version of this, if money was off the table, like, like walk me through, like, don't, don't walk me through the first day, but like walk me through like Wednesday, 2 PM, year three, like, what, what are you doing? Right. You're, you're, you're 43 years old. Like, you gotta, you're not gonna like sit in a watch Netflix all day, right? And so that's when people start to like uh, bring out all of these elaborate stories. Like, oh, I would, um, uh, oh, I would, um, you know, I would take a cooking class or I would, you know, I would learn jujitsu and like, like, why aren't you doing that now? Exactly. Why aren't you doing that now? And it was always, always an excuse. Always, always an excuse. So that would be one. The other thing is I try to get them to honor what I've started to call um, the tiny moments of their lives. 
Like, what are the tiny moments that light you up? Like this little small thing where, um, you know, it's like, a, like I, I was just, I was quite parched and I just drank some water and like, I was like, oh, that was just like a delicious sip of water. Um, and just get people to pay attention to those tiny moments. People and then what's that? I said, because people don't. They, like, people just, don't. Yeah. You only look at these big events. You look at like the concert or the sport event or the exactly. vacation versus exactly. the like, you wake up and your dog jumps in bed with you and you know, those type of things. Exactly. And those like, I think that some people just have an openness to it and they, they, they just get it. They're like, ah, oh, shit. Like all this time I'm worrying about the Slack messages, but it's just lit watching my, my daughter did this like really funny animal crossing dance this morning. I'm like, that's it. Mm-hmm. That's the meaning of life is just being present for her wacky animal crossing dance this morning. Right. Which if I was thinking about work, if I was thinking about the next blog post, if I was thinking about what I was going to say on this podcast, I would have fucking missed it. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like kind of, and I think it takes getting used to, because again, if you go back to the arrow, it's like, well, this, this sip of water is not helping me get the, land the arrow on the target. And this, you know, this l- joke I told my daughter is not helping me land the arrow. And then, and then 10 years go by and you're like, I missed all the tiny moments and they don't even want to fucking talk to me anymore because they're preteens. Yeah. Right? So I think that's a way, but I think a lot of it through just like, just making the time. And this is why what financial advisors do, what I do, coach, what therapists do, it's kind of similar. Mm-hmm. You ask questions and you listen without judgment. Mm-hmm. And in our society, we don't really have much space for that. Oh man, I think that is, I think that is so interesting. I do, I do see the overlap between the three and how I view all of them. Really, the goal about it is like, how do we help you live a life that's more fulfilling to you? And how do you mm-hmm. use your resources and your mind? And you know, you know, the therapist is talking about like these things. Hey, you, you could probably be a lot happier if you realize all of these great moments you have in a day. And so here's why, you know, the mm-hmm. gratitude journals work, right? Exactly. It's like it helps rewire your brain to to find those things. Um, man, I think that's so interesting. And my mind is going like a hundred places. <laughs> everything that you're saying and like how to think through this. Take a deep breath. But I think that these questions and the questions that I asked too, a lot of times you're right. The answers are all things that are doable today. Yes. And and then that that leads to that most powerful question of like, well, then why aren't you doing it today? And most people don't really have an answer. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I find is interesting is when you talk about that, hey, three years from now, what are you doing at that time? And I feel like your answer, if you said, hey, I've, I've $50 million, right? I don't have to work again. Your answer probably would be the same thing. And mine would be too. Like to me, I look five years from now, I would do the exact same thing. Maybe I would hire more people. Maybe like mm-hmm. I would scale it a little differently. But I think that's kind of a freeing feeling to know that like you're in that thing that you wouldn't actually give up if money wasn't an object. Cause for 99% of people, the answer is that. And that's where I come back to. And I like Justin's whole thing about like, you know, finding that passion and the job that you love and is that a business Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. I think a lot of people hear that is kind of like, oh, that's like kind of like head trash and like nobody like just Mm -hmm. do what you're good at. Like screw your passions. But I think when you find those people who have both, 
you you can like feel it in the way that they live their life, the way that they talk and like the energy, the positivity they have. It's a very unique thing that I think until really our generation didn't really even exist as an option. Yeah. So we're still getting getting accustomed to it. Yeah. And and I would, I think one thing that's hitting me is as we're talking is like, I don't think people, I don't think our culture creates the space for people to ask questions about their lives. And, you know, questions are a little scary because especially these types of questions, because there's not, there's no like universal answer. And you might not like your answer either. You might not like the answer and, and you don't have the, so it's much easier to like grab a cocktail or go to a concert or do some more work or, you know, go surf Reddit. Like it's much more easy to do that than to be like, how would I be satisfied on a Wednesday in three years? Like, really? Like, what does that really mean? Because you have to get into these questions. Like what, eventually you have to get into, you have to answer questions like, what does fulfillment even mean? Right? We don't, we would need a much longer podcast. What does happiness even mean? Right? We don't even define these terms. That, that, we'll say that for an, another conversation. So I, so I do see we're coming on the hour. <laughs> um. I think a good way to honestly wrap up and come back to is I feel like we we're talking around what is enough, but I think a good way to wrap this up is one, like for people that have, to have a takeaway of like, how do they think through it is enough for them? And maybe even right before that is how do you think through what is enough for you or whichever way you think is better? Mm, yeah. So you, you mentioned kind of enough for me is this kind of this, I asked myself this lottery test, which is, um, you know, if I, if a billion dollars showed up in my bank account yesterday, how, what would today look like? And the close, I want them to always be the same. And and for the last five years, it's been like, I would do the exact same thing if I had a billion dollars, you know, we'd be talking. Uh, so that would be one. And then um, as for others, I would say, um, I would, I would invite them to do like a future casting exercise. So like picture yourself five years from now and and you have enough and just write stream of consciousness. What does that look like? Yeah. And, it, and you got to be realistic. Cause like you, your parents are five years older, right? Like, you know, people still go to school, right? Unless you're going to like homeschool. Right. So write through all these things, reflect on them uh, and then paint that picture and then just try to take one step towards that. Right. And the last and probably the end on this, uh, the last thing is I know everyone's pursuing enough but I want every single person to, that's listening to this to know you are enough right now. You don't need to do anything more. You don't need to acquire anything more. You do not need to prove anything more to yourself or to anyone else. Your starting point from the day you were born until the day you, are, until the day you pass is that you are enough. I love that. I think one thing I want to add in here too, just because my audience is younger, I have twenties, thirties, you know, up to mid 40 year olds is the, the exercise of the five years. If you are in your twenties and you're like, you know, I'm in year three of consulting or whatever, big work, a lot of work, understand that it might be 10 years, right? Like this might be a stepping stone in five years. You might be a little bit closer and maybe you're just starting out your company or you're just starting out at like a tech firm or something that you're passionate about, but maybe 10 years is the realistic timeline after you have this learning to finally kind of get to that place. Because I think some people get a little scared by that of like, there's no way I could ever be there in five years. Like I have to put in the reps, mm-hmm. but it's okay if it's 10 years and you're young, right? Like you, I mean, it still took you 
13 years to kind of hit that point of figuring out like, this isn't my enough. This is the change that I need to make. And now I actually know what does make me happy. Yeah. And I'm still figuring out for myself. Like, and I will until my last breath on this earth. That's the journey of life. And maybe you have some of the big pieces, like you're still, there's still parts of it, but like every year you have a little bit more of that figured out, you know, you're on the right journey. So, well, thanks, Katie. Thank you for coming on, man. Um, Obviously, where's the best place for everybody to follow you? I mean, I know you have what, over 40,000 subscribers. Yeah. Um, Talk about those. Thank you. Best place, radreads.co, no M on it. Uh, Sign up for our newsletter, um, weekly essays, just lots of stuff like this to make you think. If you want to chat, I'm super active on Twitter. Uh, I would just Google Kehi Twitter because my handle is super long. And then I'd make a daily short. Uh, So I'm on Instagram, radreadsco, TikTok, YouTube shorts. Perfect. Well, thanks for the time, man. Again, you were on my like top list of people I want to get on and hopefully we'll, as long as you're cool to do another episode and, you know, maybe a year and revisit this and our journeys and how we've grown and define more of this for ourselves and just dig deeper into it. I would love that, my friend. Perfect. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Rate, subscribe, go follow KE and we will see you back next week. All right. Thanks everyone.